Mark chapter 11, reading in verse number 27. We have been in the book of Mark. This will be 44 weeks now. Verse 27, then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gospel of Mark and all of the books of the Bible. I pray today as we... uh, Look at this short passage that you'll speak to us, teach us. Father, fill me with your spirit. Help me today to say what needs to be said and nothing more. And uh, Lord, to leave uh, absolutely nothing out. I pray that uh, help me to be bold where I need to be bold, compassionate where I need to be compassionate, and just help me to be accurate to your word. May this not be a time when people think about what I said, but about what you said. And may when we leave, Jesus be all that we And I pray especially, Father, today, if there are those who are wondering about the things that are addressed in this very passage, that you'll speak to their hearts and uh, help them, Lord, to decide for you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, there are several questions that are asked. It seems to be a whole passage of questions. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders were the first to ask a question. They actually asked two. In verse number 28, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And Who gave you this authority to do these things? Two different questions. Jesus responded with a question of his own. In uh, verse number 29, Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you a question and then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And then one final question came as they were debating amongst themselves how they could possibly come up with an answer that would uh, satisfy both him and them. And they were struggling with this, and then we get to verse 31, and the question, which I think is a very important question, said, why then did you not believe him? So there's four questions there, and they're all good questions, and I want us to examine them a little bit. But as I studied this, and as we, as we open the Bible and study any passage of Scripture, one of the things that's always good to do is to ask questions of the text. And so all kinds of questions come to my mind, even outside of those four that I think we might want to think about this morning. For example, one of the first questions that comes to mind is, what was the motive of Jesus' questioners? Why did they ask this question in the first place? They want to know the answer? What was their motivation? And we only need to glance back up the page a few verses to verses 15 through 17, and we find exactly what it was. We see Jesus criticizing those who were buying and selling in the temple and tossing out the money changers and all that sort of thing. And then in verse number 18, we read that the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. No doubt this group of people had their fingers in the business of the temple. No doubt they were profiting in some way from those activities that were taking place there. And when Jesus came in and uh, kicked all that out, it personally affected them. It hit them in the pocketbook. And so part of their motivation there was that. 
We read verse 28, and we have to ask yet another question. It's related to what we just talked about, but we have to ask, what did they mean by these things in that verse? I don't know, maybe it's the same question, just stated a different way. But again, the answer is, when we go back through the these things, we're no doubt what took place right there in verses 15 through 17 when Jesus was cleansing the temple. Who gave you the authority to do that? Who gave you the authority to do these things? But even though I think that the, the question was probably centered specifically around that, it might have had a little more general uh, meaning as well. I can imagine that they were, they were kind of asking in their hearts, who is this guy and what is his authority to do that, as well as all the other things that he's been doing all of this time. So I think it had both a specific and a general reason. Another question comes to my mind, and that's why didn't Jesus answer Josh and I were just talking about this before the service this morning. They asked him a question. He didn't answer. You know, a lot of times people ask us questions about our faith. We always have to answer every single one of them. Jesus didn't answer this question. Why didn't he? Instead, he turned it around and asked them a question of their own. What was he trying to do with that question in verse number 30? What was his motive in asking it? Just out of the blue, here comes this question about John the Baptist. What did that have to do with anything that was being discussed there? John MacArthur in commenting on that, says Christ was in effect forcing the men to carry out their roles as religious guides for the people and to go on record with an evaluation of both John's and his ministries. Interesting. Asking questions of the text is just such a good, good way to study the Bible. And there are so many that come to mind as we think about this. What does the response of the leaders say about them? That's a question we might ask. What does it say about their attitude toward truth? Did they care about the truth? When they asked this question, was it because they were trying to get to the truth? I would say no. They didn't care about the truth at all. And I would also say that that's an attitude that prevails in our society and in our culture today. Very few people care about the truth. And then that brings up this question. What are the ramifications to society when such a mindset exists? When there is no concern for truth. What are the ramifications for an individual when he or she has no interest in truth? When, as we see everywhere in our culture today, truth is whatever we want it to be. Everything is relative. There is no such thing as absolute truth. What are the ramifications of that? Since they didn't seem to care about the truth, we have to wonder what they consider to be their authority. And so perhaps Jesus, when he turned it around and asked the question of them, was exposing that, exposing their own lack of authority. Maybe he was turning the question back on them and saying, what, by what authority do you question me? Maybe that's why he asked that. And, of course, a very simple question that arises from all of this is, uh, I don't know, maybe the most overriding question of all is, is authority important today? Is authority important in the church Is authority important in homes? Is authority important in government, school, anywhere in our lives? If someone were to ask you today, by what authority do you live your life? How would you answer that question? By what authority? Well, there's a lot of questions. I want to examine the the passage just a bit and see if we can find some answers to it. You'll remember that this particular event is taking place during Passion Week. Uh, you know that from this point on, or actually from, from a little bit earlier on, uh, beginning in chapter 11, we find Jesus uh, entering into the last week on earth. Uh, we've already seen him 
uh, come riding into Jerusalem on a grand display there in the very first part of chapter 11, riding atop a donkey, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Right after that, Mark described a couple of events that took place, including Jesus cursing the fig tree. We talked about that, and, and also Jesus uh, cleansing the temple. And as we've already come to understand, that last incident is probably what so infuriated them and caused them to begin plotting his downfall in earnest. And as part of their efforts, that's why they asked the question. So that's the context. Let's, let's unpack the question just a little bit. The question that I really want us to think about is in verse number 28. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? And the first thing I would say to you about that is it's a valid question. Nothing wrong with the question. It's actually a good question. And if, 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 if it was valid then, if we were to put ourselves in their place and try to imagine the chaotic scene that was described in verses 15 through 17, where Jesus was cleansing the temple, we can empathize with them just a little bit, can't we? These guys were in charge of the temple. These guys were in charge of the worship and the services and the activities and the environs and everything that took place in the temple. They were in charge of that. They were in charge of its processes and its daily activities. What Jesus did would be like a person walking into our service right now in the midst of this and saying, ah, stop all that, you're doing all this wrong. Bad example, maybe. But in their way of thinking, that's exactly what it would be like. We've had that actually happen here. But some of you may remember that happening here one time. These guys thought they were in charge. Who was Jesus to come in and claim otherwise? So it was a valid, if we put ourselves into their minds, it was a valid question uh, with that specific context. But it wasn't only a valid, or it wasn't only a valid question there. It's a valid question today. Who is Jesus and by what authority does he make the claims that he makes on our lives? And I can think of several reasons why that's an important question and why it's a valid question and why every one of us ought to ask it even now as we're thinking these things through. One reason is because Christianity costs. Christianity costs. I imagine right now Jerry and Liz Harmon are experiencing a cost to their faith that most of us cannot even imagine. Christianity costs. Who Jesus is and whether or not he is the authority he claimed to be determines whether or not it's worth it. Determines whether, it's not a, whether or not it's worth it to be a Christian or not. One time Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his life, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. That's a pretty big thing to demand of your followers. Give up everything to follow me. Who was Jesus to make such a request, such a demand? And by what authority could he make such demands? See, it's important to know who you're following. It's actually vital to know who you're following. Some, some years ago, I'm sure some of you will remember, this is kind of a dated and older illustration now, but some years ago you remember, may remember that there was a cult leader named Jim Jones. Anybody remember about him? Jim Jones, who uh, led a group of people to a compound in Jonestown, Guyana. And shortly thereafter, he led that same group of people to take their own lives in a large mass suicide. It was a horrible event, which you can still go and read about today. And some years after that, something similar happened with the Heaven's Gate cult in California. Do you remember that one? Another opportunity for a cult leader, a crazed nut cult leader, to get people to commit mass suicide. It's important to know who you're following. Because things like that point to the tragedy of having 
a wrong belief system, the tragedy of following the wrong person. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, points out how tragic it would be to follow Jesus if he is not who he claimed to be, if he doesn't have the authority that he claimed to have. Paul said in chapter 15, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. See, there's thousands of religions. There's religions all over the world. Who Jesus is determines whether his is the right one. He, he is the one who made it exclusive, saying his was the only way. John 14 and verse number 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. There is no other way. That was his claim. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, it's all or nothing with Jesus. That's his demand. All or nothing. He does not accept other religions. He does not allow for the possibility so trumpeted in our culture that all religions worship the same God. Jesus would never accept that thinking. There would be no coexist bumper sticker on the on the bumper of Jesus' car. He demands, he requires total commitment. You cannot believe in Allah and believe in Jehovah. You cannot. You cannot follow the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Buddha. You cannot. It is exclusive. You can't hedge your bets and believe a little on him and a little on somebody else just to be safe. He demands total allegiance. You can't be part Christian. You have to throw it all into the Jesus pile. So who was this Jesus who claimed that, demanded that? I've flown a few times in my life, and uh, whether for business or for pleasure or whatever, but I hopped on a few different planes. And like all the rest of you who've ever done the same, as I approached the plane, I had to make a decision somewhere along the line whether or not I was actually going to get on that plane. And now it's possible I could have thought to myself, maybe I'll put one foot in that plane and leave the other foot on the ground. I'm not sure that would have worked. I'm not quite sure what have happened to me. Of course, we know it wouldn't have worked. You're either in the plane or you're not. And so it is with Christ. You're either in Christ or you're not. It's an exclusive only. There is no coexist. There's none of that. No, no, no. All religions worship the same God. So it's important then to know who Jesus is and what authority backs his claims. It's important for some other reasons. How about this one? Some of you may or may not agree with me on this one. I think it's scriptural. I think it's true. I think I've experienced it. Sin is pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable. It's attractive. And who Jesus is and what is his source of authority determines whether it is something we ought to enjoy or something we ought to flee. I mean, after all, our culture says enjoy it, right? Our culture says it's okay. Our, our culture says uh, as long as it's okay for you, it's okay. If it feels good, do it. Nobody can tell you what's right and what's wrong. That's what our culture says. Jesus says go and sin no more. Very simple. Jesus says that it's not something. Paul told Timothy, Speaking for Jesus as his apostle, flee youthful lusts. Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews said that by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses in that passage is an illustration 
of what the Bible teaches and of what Jesus commands, that we need to turn our backs on the pleasures of sin because we're now part of the family of God. Why would we do that? Why would we do that unless Jesus is who he claims he is and has the authority to make that demand of our life? There's all kinds of reasons that we could cite for why the questions these men asked of Jesus were valid, not only in their context, but in ours as well. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? It was valid then. It's valid now. However, and this is point number two, however, it was not asked for a valid reason. Think of the motives of these men. We've already touched on it a little bit, but the motives of these men have already been stated in verse number 18. They wanted to destroy him. They weren't interested in the things of God. As a matter of fact, their lack of interest in the things of God had already been demonstrated. They had rejected John's message. What did John preach about? John pointed to Jesus Christ. In rejecting John's message, they were rejecting Jesus too. These, these were men who had already decided. And so when they asked the question, they didn't want to know the answer. They were asking for a different motive. It was an invalid reason. Brings me to the final point, which is this. Jesus did not answer their question. Because they were not seeking an answer, but seeking further reason to reject him. He didn't answer their question because they were not seeking an answer, but rather seeking further reason to reject him. I don't know about you, but I can't read very far in the Gospels before I come to the conclusion that Jesus never turned away anybody who was actually seeking him. Can you think of an example where he did? I can't think of a one. Somebody seeking Jesus? He was always there to be found. When the woman with the issue of blood snuck up behind him at the crowd just to touch his robe, he accepted her. He didn't turn her away. Her faith was so far from perfect. She was cowardly, sneaking up on him, hoping nobody would notice, hoping he wouldn't even notice. But she was genuinely seeking him. He did not turn her away. When Zacchaeus, despised by men because he was dishonest and a thief, climbed up in a sycamore tree, just so we get a glimpse of Jesus, Jesus stopped at the foot of the tree and invited him to come down, invited himself into Zach's life. He didn't turn him away, though he was a bum, because he was honestly seeking the Savior. Imperfect seeking, but seeking. Bartimaeus, we talked about him just a few weeks ago. Bartimaeus was poor. He was an outcast. He was a blind beggar. He had absolutely nothing, and yet he was a genuine seeker. And Jesus stopped dead in his tracks at his prayer. And he was blindness and saved his soul. The thief on the cross had wasted his life. I am so thankful for the example of the thief on the cross. Because I don't care where you are in life. You can relate to the thief on the cross. If the thief on the cross was saved, Anybody can be saved. The thief on the cross <laughs> wasted his life, thrown away every opportunity. He had run his whole life with the wrong crowd. He had taken from and hurt others. And he had come to the very end of the road, and he hung suspended on a cross, paying the price for his crimes. And yet when even he turned to the Savior and prayed, Lord, remember me. Such a simple, such an imperfect prayer. Lord, remember me. Jesus heard him, even from the cross said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because no matter what else this thief was, he was somebody who was genuinely, honestly seeking the Savior. 
You see, anybody who turned to Christ with a genuine desire to know him, a genuine desire to understand the truth, found and will find today a willing Savior. You don't have to understand perfectly. You don't have to have some kind of settled and whole theology. You don't have to know the Bible inside out. You just have to come with a heart that is open and wants to know. The man in Mark chapter 9 is another wonderful example. The man in Mark chapter 9 who brought his child to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. How do we not relate to that one? How many of us have had that? Where we believe, but there are also doubts at the same time. Jesus answered his prayer. He didn't understand everything, but he saw it, and Jesus was there. You see, it's a truth that's found in nearly every page of the Bible. Our God never turns away those who seek him. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Luke chapter 11, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John 6, 30. You've heard my testimony before. I was saved when I was 12 years old. I was saved right here in this church. I had heard the gospel, and I knew it applied to me. Nobody in the room believes that I understood everything about it at 12 years old. I did not. But I did understand that I needed to turn to Christ. I did understand that I was a sinner. I did understand that I was lost without him. And so I turned to him with my 12-year-old imperfect faith, and he did not turn me away. I had a dear friend named Charlie Sprouse when I lived in southern Ohio and served in the church down there. Charlie Sprouse was an elderly man when I knew him, sweet old saint. Just a fun guy to be around. Love the Lord. Charlie's testimony was that he was saved while he was sitting on the seat of a bulldozer. He worked in a steel mill, pushing junk around with his bulldozer. He said one day he just got to thinking about all the things that he'd heard, all the messages that had been preached, and he turned to Christ. It was an imperfect faith. Charlie was a drunk before he got saved. Charlie was a bum. He would tell you that he'd be the first to tell you he was a moonshiner. He'd been in trouble with the with the law on multiple times for making whiskey. He liked fighting roosters. He had all kinds of strange things that he loved to do. But he gave it all up and turned to Jesus. And when he sought, Jesus responded, did not turn him away. And I remember burying Charlie, who had lived the rest of his life a servant of his king. See, wherever you are, if you're seeking, Jesus says this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. The songwriter said, I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee. For cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary, I am coming, Lord. Coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed on Calvary. Anyone who sought Jesus found him there. He never turned anybody away and never turns anybody away today. Whatever your state, he will not turn you away if you go and ask and say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. But notice, notice what happened here. He concealed the truth from these men. 
He concealed the truth from these rejectors. He, he, even, he ever responded with open arms to those who sought him. But, but these guys, these guys, he refused to answer their question and he concealed the truth from them. He actually turned away from them. Warren Wiersbe wrote, God does not teach us new truth if we have rejected the truth he has already revealed. And that is exactly where these guys were. Exactly what they had done. They had rejected the truth that had already been revealed to them. What a warning. How dangerous it is for us to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who, like these men, have decided they will not believe. Jesus may very well say, all right, I accept your answer. And my offer is withdrawn. How dangerous to reject Jesus. Verse 28 is our text. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? He didn't answer their question then. But one day, not very far removed from this, he would answer it very plainly. Just before his ascension, Jesus came and spoke to them, his disciples, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, verse 18. The world asks, what's your authority, Jesus? And Jesus responds, all authority. All of it is mine. He has all authority. No one is a greater authority. He is the final authority. Think of the ramifications of that truth. It does mean that it's worth it to be a Christian. Even though the cost is high, it will be worth it all. We have his word on it. And he's the final authority. It means we can be confident about our choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and reject every other belief system. Christianity is the right and true way. We have his word on it, and he is the final authority. It means it is worth it to live a life of righteousness, even though sometimes we would rather, in our flesh, be enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. We have his word on it, and he is the final authority means that when Jesus said he's the door to heaven, he's the bread of life, he's the only way, that no one comes to the Father except by him, we can believe him. We must believe him because he is the final authority. And it means that whatever we go through in this fallen world, we can look forward to reward and glory to come because he promised it. There is no pain here that won't be done away with there. There is no loss here that won't be repaid there. There is no sorrow here that won't become joy there. He has promised it. And he is the final authority. So what about you, my friend? When you hear these things, do you want to know more? Or do you, as some reject it, just out of hand? There is, if there is a truth from this passage, it's this. There is hope. And heaven for the seeker, but there is hopelessness in hell for the rejecter. This exchange between Jesus and these chief priests and scribes and elders, this exchange teaches that the truth about Christ is revealed to all who seek him and often concealed from.